0: Chapter 23 The Perils of a Benighted Slave Eventually, Paul walked me down the main hallway dividing the FEMA medical bay. It reminded me of the infirmary back at CBU, just a little dusty. Dark monitor screens and empty clipboards lined the walls near patient room doors. Two wheeled beds were parked near the end of the hallway and opened double doors into an exam room. Paul filled the time with more explanation. We have two doctors here, not including the guy upstairs. Igor is just a glorified military medic. Vietnam vintage. Igor? Paul continued. Upstairs, you call him. Doc. We call him Igor because he's the one who brings us... cases from upstairs. The terminally pregnant woman you saw, for example. The very old and sick. We bring them here and the science guys do science stuff on them. In a humane way, of course. Comfort and dignity and all that. I understood Paul's active detachment. I could only imagine the number of people he locked out of HG World the day the doors closed. He was the one to tell the managers to shudder, leaving hundreds of living people outside at the mercy of a small herd of eaters. When a small group of refugees managed to break into the sewer tunnels on the west side of the building... Paul had them dealt with in a humane way, of course. I understood Paul as that necessary breed of human that had to make inhuman choices. Motivated by selflessness, he has found himself in opposition of his better nature. That French quarter artist taken from home at gunpoint is now the gatekeeper at a superdome of his own design. He has accepted his role and will execute his duties for his self-proclaimed greater good— The best someone like Paul Handsome can hope for now is a merciful God, and for history to forget him in favor of more heroic figures. Noticing a whiteboard with names and a list of what looked like test subject codes, I asked Paul, Who are the scientists? Holdovers from the CDC FEMA group that was deployed here months ago. As you noticed, the main body never made it back here. Most of them abandoned their posts the same way our military kind of disappeared one weekend when things got really bad. Most never got on the plane from Atlanta. I wonder how that worked out for them down there. I hear the southern states are worse off than up here. I kept on topic. What do the scientists do? I think you know. You saw the report on Mama Zombie and Child. We test the bloodish stuff in their veins and their skin and their brains for... whatever. And they try to figure out how to stop it. I take it they haven't gotten far with it? On the contrary. I'm told there are great strides toward eradicating the plague. But that didn't come from the scientists. It came from the eater's own mouth. At the moment he said it, I assumed it was another bit of Paul's dark humor, but... A sense of honest dread helped hold that last sentence in my mind. I couldn't figure out the punchline. So I asked, what does that mean? He stopped at the connecting door and turned to me with a very tired smile, but a look in his eyes that I'd seen from older kids at school, my parents, anyone in my life who had ever said, be careful what you wish for, or, oh, you will understand why someday. All Paul said was, Check this out first. Paul led me through another connecting door into the exam room. Looming over that exam table was a puffy middle-aged man who appeared to have just rolled out of bed with an empty scotch bottle. Clearly, he was not used to being around people. He wore a long white lab coat over green scrubs stained in patches and smears of rusty brown. He wore thick glasses and earbuds connected to a device tucked into his coat. His hair looked like abstract art made from dried straw. When he detected movement, he leapt back from the exam table with a start and nearly fell backward into a cabinet of specimens. He yelled at Paul and Paul snapped back at him, but I didn't hear what they were saying. I recognized the person on the table. Mr. O'Neill. Paul touched my shoulder. Jill Woodbine, this is Dr. Yukov. His main preoccupations are vodka and masturbation, but he can do some work for us on occasion. I believe you know his patient. Dr. Yukov returned to the table. I pretended not to notice him staring at me like I was the first girl to ever walk into a comic book convention. What he was looking for or doing when I arrived remains unclear. There were no tubes or devices attached to O'Neil, and Yukov wasn't checking his vitals. I assumed the doctor was just getting a good look at his subject. That didn't make it, or him, any less creepy. Yukov coughed up something disturbing into his handkerchief and commenced explaining. Mr. O'Neil has cancer, specifically acute monocytic leukemia, which he was... Technically. Required to inform us of upon arrival. We didn't discover it until he spent some time upstairs with his meltdown. I could understand O'Neill might not want to tell the guards about his condition, especially after witnessing families split apart because one of them was clearly ill or malnourished. Constables would force parents and spouses to make horrifying choices about staying together in danger or split up and give some of their group a chance at safety. Didn't surprise me that O'Neil lied, but Yukov's attitude was a little off-putting, like, sorry his cancer inconvenienced you, asshole. Instead, I asked, what could you have done if he'd told you? Nothing, to be honest, and we probably would have let him in anyway, as you can't catch cancer like the flu. But we like to know what's going on under the skin of everyone up there. It didn't show up in our triage screenings, of course. Upstairs, he mentioned to Igor that he was getting ready for chemotherapy when things went bad. So, here we are. He is sedated right now, so I can examine him freely. Paul said what I was thinking. That seems a little... unusual. Yukov seemed to take offense. He is... Dreaming, Mr. Handsome. This seemed to make sense to Paul, who nodded as if this were a standard form of treatment for leukemia. I asked, So what, he's going to dream away his cancer? Yukov sneered at me. No, but it's a better option than anything we can offer here. In a good hospital with expert oncologists and equipment would put his survival rate close to 90%. Here, the man's dead in two long, slow, painful months. A nibble from a necromulet would kill you quicker. This is better for all concerned. I'm sorry, I said, feeling for O'Neill. of course. you have tried to put a positive spin on it with a tired smile. It's a great opportunity for us, you know. We've always wanted to see how the pain infection dances with cancer cells. We know cancer patients reanimate, but the interesting thing is that we've seen actual physical and mental improvements after animation. As with the paraplegics, parts of the body that didn't function before death are able to function again. Want to know why? Because we estimate that after pain is transmitted through sufficient hosts, it learns how the human body is supposed to work. And therefore, when it takes over the brain and the nervous system, it can actually repair the body. It's quite amazing. Has she met Lucille yet? He said this as if it would help make his point. Paul winced, the scarred side of his face folding and twisting like a bad prosthetic. No, Doc, I was saving that for the last stop on the tour. Yukov offered me his creepy little grin. You'll like her, the doctor assured me as he turned back to his patient. As for Mr. O'Neill here, we're about to try something new and frightening and maybe even fun. I'm going to take some of Lucille's blood and inject it into the rotten marrow. And we'll watch what happens. Paul answered me before I could open my mouth. Yes, we're infecting a living person. Mr. O'Neill has no treatment options and will be deader than folk music within a month. He gave us consent to perform a drastic medical procedure. You lied. No. If it works, the blood will cure him. Of course, then it will kill and reanimate him. But the point is that we have proof of concept that we can use pervasive assimilative immunonucrosis to cure disease when and if we can control them. I, I mean, it. There's your lead paragraph, Jilly. This is going on all over the world. And we've got something every other lab wants. Let me show you. Part 2 I tried to keep track of all of the twists and turns, but I got the feeling that Paul was taking me the long way around the FEMA Bay, trying to disorient me or give me the impression that the Down Under was much bigger than it really is. I tried to keep track of the details, if only to identify rooms and passages I'd been down before, but... Paul was careful to avoid the places with nameplates on doors, and all the signs I'd seen in other parts of the site had been pulled from the walls. As we wound our way through the down under, Paul kept humming a few bars of a song I didn't immediately recognize. It echoed down the corridor, off the drywall and plaster. It reminded me of my dad working on his old Dodge in the garage. Just as that memory began to bleed into the part of my mind such thoughts should not go while in polite company, we stopped walking, and Paul stopped humming. We arrived at another examination day. These doors were closed and locked with a passcode that Paul entered with fast fingers, resulting in a digital chirp and a click of an electronic lock. He cast me a quick look and that smile that suggested I was in for another shock. He disappeared into the gray shadows, wiggling his one intact eyebrow. I followed him into a room similar to the one where Yukov had been looking over O'Neill. In the center of this room was a cylindrical chamber stretching floor to ceiling with no discernible entry but a clear glass ring around the top third of the cylinder. The interior was dark, and the perimeter lit only by soft white light from spots in the ceiling. Paul approached the chamber and found a button to press. Excuse me, Lucille, may we speak with you? For a moment, we heard nothing but a scratchy static, but it was followed by a low, slightly wet growling sound, and then the sleepy, hungry reply. One moment, Paul. Allow me to awaken fully. Paul exaggerated a shudder for my benefit, clicked the button again and said, Creeps me right down to my goddamned balls. You? I did not reply, but my face apparently convinced him I felt the same, uh, minus the balls. He clicked the button again and announced, Lucille, I'm going to turn on the lights. I brought you a guest. Another click and light faded softly into the chamber, like a stage spotlight for a solo ballad. In the center of the chamber, under that spot, was a body propped up in an examination chair. It was the body of a woman, arguably in her mid-thirties, shiny black hair that fell like a hood around her slender face and to her neckline, pale with a bluish hue under the spotlight. She had the look of a fresh corpse, skin taut and waxy with yellow, unblinking eyes empty of life or moisture. She wore nothing but the scars of her autopsy. The distinct Y of a coroner's cut crossed between her breasts down to her navel. The incision was closed by needle and thread in a tight pattern that made me think it was done by machine. It was done neatly, though I noticed it had begun to pull and stretch in places where the body might move. She was like a cross between the body of Vladimir Lenin on display in the Kremlin and a Greek statue of a maiden in repose, but it made no sense. This was... Just another corpse, I remember thinking, and then looking around the chamber for the source of the voice, then up and out into the room for someone watching us remotely. There were no cameras in the room. Paul made two quick clicks on the microphone button and said, Take it easy on the girl. I think this might be a lot to take in at once. The body moved. Its head turned in our direction, slowly and deliberate. The lips parted. With effort, it articulated its breathy words with stiff lips and a nearly frozen tongue. We are Lucille. My inside voice said, No, you were Lucille, past tense, I am Jill, present tense. My outside voice automatically responded as I'd been taught growing up. Nice to meet you. I'm Jill. And as soon as it left my mouth, I felt like I'd just been introduced to the life-size fiberglass bird outside a red robin and told it the pleasure was all mine. Yes. We've been told many excellent things about you, Jill Woodbine. I stuttered a few syllables in reply, but then settled on being absurd. I don't know what social rules we're following. I've never talked to a corpse in a can before, so forgive me for not shaking hands. Jill, Paul growled. Purple, dry lips cracked as she spoke. We have no arms or legs where we come from, Jill. These hands... Arms are quite cold and weak. We hope my appearance does not disturb you too greatly. You've no doubt witnessed great horrors in recent weeks and months. We are so sorry for that. Who are you, Lucille? Why are you locked up in here? Between exchanges, there would always be a moment of silence, perhaps in part to form a reply, but also to gather the necessary strength to speak. I could see Paul shifting nervously from heel to heel. We are speaking through the woman who was last to die as host to us. If you think of us as a sickness to the body, perhaps It is best if you imagine that you are speaking to the disease. I looked over at Paul, who seemed a little uneasy watching Lucille shift in her chair. I was looking for the sign he was about to deliver the punchline. When it didn't come, I pelted him with sarcasm. An eater! I can't believe it! I'm talking to... interviewing... an eater! It's like Anne Rice ran out of ideas and... Paul cleared his throat. Sorry, Lucille. She doesn't know the differences between you and your... Lucille interrupted. It is quite all right... As derogatory names go, it is actually fitting. Until we earned understanding of the human soul, that name had no meaning. You'll understand that the name Eater is a mark of shame to us in light of the suffering and death we've imposed upon you. What? What can we do to put you at ease, Jill Woodbine? We understand this can be an overwhelming experience. Try to imagine what the part of us who is Lucille Albrecht feels at this moment. As I tried to think of a hundred things to say back to the corpse, Paul spoke up. Let's dial this back so I can explain. Doc Yukov says that you're not really talking to Lucille. The real Lucille had a bad heart, and she had an attack while working down here and died a week ago. Before she died and... He made sure to emphasize this part. With her consent, we injected her with the blood of another subject. Laurie, I think. Who could talk and remember who he was in life. Lauren... The corpse corrected. Uh, Right. This is an improvement, but Doc said she still sounds a little autistic. She has trouble with abstracts and emotions. She... Lucille interrupted. Corrections are needed, Paul Handsome. Lucille is here in this mind with us. She is preserved among us. Somehow... Even as my rational brain tried to figure out how Paul was pulling off this extraordinary prank, I had decided that something was talking to me through Lucille Albrecht's body. What I was feeling, the core of this entire exchange, was the dawn of a horrifying realization that this entire crisis had a face. It had a voice and a name. Lucille. In that moment... Everything evil and wrong and sad in the world personified. I believed it as much as the name I took from my parents, now probably dead or walking the earth like Lucille's kind. Of course, Lucille had the gift of speech, and despite the fact that she claimed to have trouble understanding emotions and semantics and all those abstract social concepts, she was quick to pick up on it. And as the dawn of this reality burned slowly through my darkest cynicism... It didn't matter to me if she were a patient zero, a scientific fluke, or just some crazy bitch in makeup. Like that murderer Henry Pennywaite said at his sentencing hearing for murdering six children in a public park last year. Those kids didn't cut my job, take my house, or kill my wife, but since I couldn't kill God for all that, I took some of the things he loved best. I can't kill the disease, but I could enjoy burning the flesh off your genocidal bones. Lucille continued. We can feel your rage and accept it. We need it to understand the scale of what we've done, if only so we can move on and grow from our tragic introduction. Wait a minute, I shot back. What do you mean you feel my rage? How the hell do you have any feeling at all? Lucille did not respond right away, and... That just made me angrier. I would like to burn you. I didn't know why I said it and was shocked at the anger in my voice when I did. Paul took a half step back from me. Stiff flesh stretched around her mouth and cracked lips bowed into a satire of a smile. Perfect teeth set in black gums. Honesty is appreciated. To be honest and kind, parts of us wish to die. But we see our mission as an opportunity to atone and try to make right something that went horribly wrong. We would like to help you, Jill. We would like to help you, Save the world. Chapter 24 The Soft Machine. Even with a distance of a few hours, recounting those moments and recalling my emotions is a little bit of a challenge. Let me get this out now. This was a real talking shit philosophizing undead thing mourning its catastrophic first contact with the human species, apologizing to me for all the bad things it had done to humanity, and acting like I was there to grant it absolution. And how was your day, dear reader? I hope my account of what followed makes sense to you. I should probably sleep on it and edit the chapters tomorrow, but honestly... I don't want to sleep. I feel like I'm being watched from inside my own head. I see Lucille's dead eyes and feel like she's eavesdropping on my thoughts. I am unsettled, unconvinced, and... Well, I'll get to that part in the next chapter. As I write this, I am safely back in Molly's room. For now. Glass of Zinfandel in hand. Pondering the biggest question of my life. Someone's at the door molly's home more in a bit part two when molly returned to the room a bit ago she was in an old jeans and a cream-colored baby doll she didn't have her coveralls her whole body was soaked with sweat causing the dirt on her face and arms to streak she said nothing but gave me a weary nod on her way to the shower she remained in the shower for nearly half an hour I decided to review the documents Paul gave me instead of working on my diary. I thought it made it seem like it actually done some work today. I can't tell Molly what I saw. I can't tell her about what I was asked to do. What it could mean. I'm curious what she'd been doing all day and excited that we finally have time together. Reading over the files Paul gave me about HG World... I realized how much the government knew about the coming plague. All the projections pointed to a doomsday scenario, but by the time they pulled the trigger on their strategic response plan, it was too late. There's nothing left to the original plans for Down Under, except orders written by men probably long dead for people who never showed up to execute them. But according to these documents, they really did have a plan. In its place is whatever Paul and company came up with to keep things going, in the hope that something better might break. I have a breakdown of all the people who were admitted to HG World since its activation as a relocation center. It shares where they came from, where they were headed, who they were in that long-dead life, and who they hoped to meet again in this or the next life. Paul gave me all this to remind me what's at stake. A list of official meltdowns runs three pages with a clear trend towards an increase in frequency the closer we get to the winter and the traditional holiday season. A list of necessary medications for refugees reads like a ransom note. He didn't need to give me a roster of schoolchildren. But I know why he did. Project Argent outlines a world after The Walking Dead burn out, fade away, or plan crazy actually works. More on that in a bit. Project Argent. Asset Recovery Genetically Engineered necroambulate Transformation. The first chapter is on the Enkidu Initiative. These folks are proud of their acronyms. It's all about trying to shut down all the eaters with a sort of rogue infection that makes more sense if I pretend someone from Star Trek is explaining it. Even so, my head hurts. I've attempted to present this diary as a linear account of things, written in those long periods where there's nothing to do but sleep. And sleeping doesn't come easy. Before Molly and I can share the night together, I have to get the rest of this written out. Particularly, the choice I'm asked to make. (laughs)